Hello and welcome to The Sound Architect. I am fortunate enough to have the wonderful Stephen Baystead with me today. Thank you for joining us, Stephen. No problem at all. Pleasure. And we'll be chatting about his recent projects as well as some of his techniques and maybe a bit more about his career history. So before we jump into any of the projects that we're going to discuss today, how about you tell us a bit about your journey into music composition and how that began? Probably began, if I can remember back that far, uh, when I was about three, I think. My parents bought a really knackered old piano, uh, and I'm sure some of the keys didn't work. They bought it from a friend for about five quid or something like that, and uh, a friend was getting rid of it. Not a very good friend by the sounds of it. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> it was an old upright, and I remember vividly sitting on a stool which was far too small uh, or far too low down as it were reaching up and just bashing on the keys and making an awful racket and I've, i particularly remember really enjoying the low register of the, the piano for some reason i don't know why yeah then the next memory i have was like many people at, at primary school recorders learning how to read music I, I think i was about five or six and then the revolution started really when one christmas my parents got me a um one tempi organ which was was amazing for me. I was about seven or eight, I think, and I had a rhythm rhythm section, you know, bossa nova and all the rumba sort of stuff on it, and strings. And it, I mean, it sounded horrible, but I thought I was, you know, I thought it was the the bee's knees. Yeah. So I was sort of imitating loads of music and just trying to find my way around, learning how to play the keyboard. And like many people at the time as well, I had sheet music to um, some Elton John music, so <laughs> so I was trying to play that as well, uh, unsuccessfully, of course. But yeah, so that's how I got into. I suppose feeling that music was somehow in the background part of my life. Then when I went to secondary school, so the age of 11, the school, I was very lucky, although it was a comprehensive school and quite rough at times, it had a wonderful and and very famous school choir. So I joined that and we sung everywhere in in the UK, pretty much all the the major concert venues and, and cathedrals. We toured Italy, etc. So I, I really got a, a strong background in choral music there. I was also lucky enough to learn the clarinet, and that um, I seemed to pick that up quite quickly. It's a very unique choice, the clarinet as well. Yeah, I, bizarrely, it wasn't something that was at all on my radar. I remember one one day sitting in the music lesson, and the uh, music teacher was asking kids or my classmates, you know, what they wanted to learn, etc. And, and anyway, people were saying piano, violin, all the rest of it. Yeah. And he said, what about the clarinet? And I was thinking, what does a clarinet look like? I didn't really know anything about the clarinet. So I said, yeah, all right, I might as well, might as well learn that. And consequently, I, I picked it up quite quickly uh, and then went to uh, a school on Saturdays, a special school on Saturdays for um, music in London. And as part of that kind of formation it eventually led to the London School Symphony Orchestra. So I played clarinet in, in that, which was fantastic. A really good orchestra. So that was in the 80s. And then like many kind of teenagers, I had a bit of a rebellion, a rebellious period, as it were. <laughs> so I kind of thought, I know, I'll be an estate agent, which was bizarre. So I kind of dropped out of education, etc. It's like the opposite way around, isn't it? Like, mm, no, yeah. screw music, I'm going to become an estate agent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, you know, sort of a, a noble profession to mm. one of the most hated. But anyway, it's fine. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I became an estate agent in London, sort of cut and thrust of, you know, Knightsbridge and Chelsea, which was far, fun for about 20 minutes, I think. Um, <laughs> but I did, I did that uh, for about four years, in fact. But on the way, this is a really strange thing, you know, one of those things in life that completely turns you around 
and alters the course of your life. Very sadly, uh, my mother's colleague died in a car crash. Anyway, to, to cut a very long story short, there was a memorial concert. One of the songs that was requested to be played at the memorial concert was Song for Guy by Elton John. And as we already know, I had this sheet music. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so I turned up really nervously, uh, played Song for Guy. And I remember afterwards at the reception, uh, one of my mother's other colleagues coming up to me and saying, you know, so, so what do you do? Um, and I said, oh, well, I, you know, I'm a state agent. She said, you idiot. You know, she was saying, how, <laughs> how could you do this? How could you waste your life? That was beautiful piano playing, etc." So anyway, I just, it, it was one of those moments where I just really started to think very carefully about what I was actually doing at the time. I was only sort of 19 or 20. And, and it really did turn my life around, really, I think, in that sense, it, musically, certainly. And, um, I really began to think, well, I really do need to get back to music. So I looked into going to university uh, to study music and, uh, cut a very long story short. Eventually, um, I got a place at Southampton, um, in the UK, very good music department, did a very traditional, uh, three year BA course then a master's in uh, historical musicology, um, nothing to do with composition, of course. And then uh, eventually I went on to do a PhD um, in uh, 18th century French opera. Whilst I was at university, I, I was lucky enough to be able to use the studio there, which was quite primitive. They had, if I remember correctly, they had uh, Yamaha. Um, what was it called? Ah, it was some kind of software thing. It was FM synthesis-based Yamaha sort of sequencery thing. There was also an Akai S2000 and a Fostex B16 reel-to-reel -reel machine. And I used to spend all my time in there making loads of sounds and all the rest of it. And I had a synthesizer, I had a, a sequential circuit, six-track. So anyway, I really got into film music in a big way in, in the early 90s, like many of my friends. And that really did start to make me think that was one of the things I'd really like to do. So, yes, yeah, so you decided to head for film music. I suppose, yes, indeed. I mean, like many people, I've played in a lot of bands, particularly at university and, and in my late teenage years, playing keyboards but and writing songs, although I wouldn't inflict any of them on anyone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, interestingly, I also got into games at that point. I'm a really huge petrol head, a major fan of uh, motorsport as well. So I'd always been trying to play as as much um in in the way of driving games as possible that, that worked out well then <laughs> yeah and at the end of the the eight at the end of the 1990s all things seemed to transpire in in such a way that i would race online when um internet and multiplayer became possible i met people through that that kind of portal through forums etc and then that led to working on games oh wow how did that first moment happened when you first worked on the game if i remember correctly um it was 1998 i think or 1999 i can't remember one of those dates and i met one of my best friends ian bell who is the head of studio and owner of slightly mad studios oh, okay. online we used to race online together he was always faster than me uh, but, <laughs> um, a bastard anyway so we used to race online and we met quite a few other people and we always wanted to have gt cars you know aston martins ferraris porsches uh racing game but there wasn't really anything available so we thought we'd 
reverse engineer an existing game, which was a Formula One game. So we did that. Uh, We made new car models, or the graphic designers made new car models. I did the sound and the music. So essentially, we we were a group of modders, a motley crew of people who were just interested in making an alternative version of the game. Um, Eventually, to cut another long story short, we released um, that version. I think it was in 2001, if, yeah, if I can remember uh, correctly. And we eventually went professional, as it were, at Simbin in 2002. And we released the first commercial game in 2004. Oh, wow. So it sort of all happened accidentally. Really. And what was the first game called that you made, sorry? It was called GTR GT Racing Simulation. Then there was GTR 2, which followed a year later, and then GT Legends, which followed a year later than that as well, I think. So would you say there's been a point in your career that was most challenging? Yeah, I, th- uh, the, I think there are lots of always challenges. I mean, I suppose that's, that's one of the great things about working in the, the film, games, TV industry. I think probably the biggest challenge so far has been working on Shift to Unleashed uh, with Electronic Arts. It was challenging for a number of reasons. I was audio director for that and one of the composers. We had a big composer team because we needed 120 minutes worth of music, and we had three months to do that, Ah, uh, which was interesting. And obviously, being Electronic Arts and the premier racing series in the world, Need for Speed, there was a huge amount of pressure on on the game. And it was also also the the sequel to their big reboot, which was Shift. And it was challenging musically, because effectively what we were doing was reimagining, renegotiating existing rock uh, music and turning it into three different versions of trailer cinematic music. Oh, okay. So we were literally um, exploding the original rock tracks for which we had stems using certain elements of them, recognizable elements, mainly vocal hooks, maybe some uh, guitar parts, etc., and then effectively building entirely new pieces around them in different genres. So the, the genres effectively were quite slow, epic, orchestral, cinematic-style music, right. trailer music, so much more upbeat, pounding stuff. Yeah, very epic. Exactly. And then the heavy Osti guys, the heavy melody guys, did all the brutalized, smashed-up electronica, which was very successful as well so that was really interesting kind of working with all those people i was working alongside uh, charles deenan who is obviously an industry legend oh yeah fantastic sound design learned huge amounts from him in all in all spheres really so that was that was brilliant he was overseeing for electronic arts the audio and and the music but towards the end of the project um inevitably in games, you get the huge crunch period. Yes. And that was a crunch and a half, I tell you. <laughs> I, think, I think the worst it got was three days, uh, three days in a row without any sleep at all, I think. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, it was pretty bad. Charles was the same. We were, you know, doing a relay, basically. So, And then, you know, inevitably, it's trying to work with test kits for Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3 and PC and running around trying to make sure th- this works, that works, building stuff, not that, oh, that, not that doesn't work. Or... And so the game balance period and trying to get everything working, and, uh, it, was a, it was a bit of a nightmare. And then also we had an enormous amount of trailers, in-game trailers and commercial trailers to, to do as well. Charles 
luckily did most of those, but I was involved in quite a few of those as well. So very intense project then. Yeah, it was it was an epic project in the truest sense of the word. Yeah, so that, I think that's probably the most challenging. You've done quite a few racing soundtracks. So obviously you've mentioned you're a bit of a petrol head and that you were kind of into the racing games. Was was that what led to it? Has it been a conscious decision to work on so many racing titles, or is it because of your kind of talent and reputation i've worked very much as part of the slightly man studios team for pretty much all the all the games i've worked on right okay and that has the the core team that that make up slightly mad studios have have evolved from the very first game we made for simbin we were originally simbin and then blimey games and then uh slightly mad studios so the games we all make primarily are racing games uh, although in 2011, the latter half of 2011, we made an iPad game, which was fantastic, really, which was The Walking Dead Assault. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, it was a really interesting game, actually, because it was, um, it was very much 3D graphic novel style in terms of its, its aesthetic and presentation. The music was pretty challenging in one sense because it needed to be dynamic and at that point on iPads and various other devices, as people well know, it was very, very difficult to do dynamic music and looping successfully. It was really, really tricky. So effectively, what we had to do was to try to determine average playthrough times for each level and then try to work out whether a three-minute piece would, would kind of satisfy that. In the end, however, ironically, we found that we used loops quite shortish loops a minute long and it it didn't kind of matter because even though the loop stopped faded out and then faded back in again it was almost a a way for the player to take breath take stock look around and then think and then get back into the action all right so it kind of worked as a gameplay mechanic yeah uh, you know accidentally really um it did but uh i think you know obviously we'd do it differently four years later but that was that was quite an interesting period so we did that we did one of the very first html5 games which is called Skid Racer, a really arcade-based fun game with rockets and all sorts of things. It was it was pretty fun. But yeah, primarily it's 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 been uh, racing games, which is good and bad. I mean, I think the biggest problem with racing simulations, uh, and like all simulations, you don't have music during gameplay. You know, it, it's you deprive the composer of that moment of scoring gameplay, which is really uh, really frustrating in one sense. So all of the work that you do as a composer has to be accomplished in the menu system. Yeah. So you're really trying to, to build the tension, build the, the, the context for the player to actually become immersed so that when the actual gameplay starts, they're already in that particular frame of mind, that, that psychological state that is ready to race and, uh, it's it's a tricky it's a it's a tall order that really I think yeah it's a very unique genre for that isn't it the fact that you have to kind of write around the gameplay yeah and it's it's problematic I mean I, I am doing I can't really talk too much about it although I understand an announcement will be made fairly shortly I am doing another game at the moment which doesn't involve cars but it does involve other motorized vehicles I can say that much. But that actually has dynamic music, so for once, which would be great. So when do we hear more about that? Well, I think there's some kind of there's some kind of big conference coming up in August, isn't there? Somewhere Games in the plan. Yeah. yeah, so I think there'll be an announcement there. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah, coming back to the simulation thing, it is, as you said, curious, because the big sound element is, of course, the engines and 
you know they have to be as realistic as possible and although um, i guess we'll come back to the the realism point where you've got the youtube generation thinking well this is real you know the the yeah. sound captured by gopro cameras unfortunately seems to represent now realism for a lot of game players whereas we all know the quality of gopro microphones isn't the best so we're always sort of battling against realism going recording cars with 5.1 set up with some fantastic microphones etc and the game player who says actually that doesn't sound like the real car because i know what the real car sounds like because i can hear it on youtube yeah so yeah it's uh, it's an interesting one but coming coming back to um the importance of sounds i mean obviously the game player in a simulation expects realism and authenticity and so it really is important to to make sure the sounds are the best possible and have been recorded properly captured and then reconstructed using whichever sound engine you're you're using at the time it's definitely one of those genres that detail is one of the key words you know just because the amount of detail they've got going to with all the different types of cars you can't have more sound the same there's so much to think about in racing games Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, for example, I calculated that we were using over 120 different WAV files just for one car. Wow. All the different engine layers, transmission layers, surface layers, wind, exhaust, all sorts of things. That's just for one car. And then, obviously, with the, the AI cars, uh, the, the sort of cut-down model. But, nevertheless, it's pretty complex. But then, of course, you've got to balance out authenticity with gameplay. Yeah, what what works from a ludic perspective because as you know obviously if you're driving around and you can't hear the tyre squeal then you know you're not going to be able to judge cornering speed in reality of course with a balaclava helmet um, earplugs but the game player still needs to hear this, um, this sound so you've got to kind of go as far as you can with realism but then dial it back a little bit for gameplay yeah, you've still got to have that suspense of disbelief with how we expect things to sound compared to how they actually sound. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, the other thing is as well, I mean, you know, for anyone out there who, who's been to a, a motor race, um, particularly GT cars or Formula One or whatever, you'll know the, the sheer sound pressure level that, that is you experience at the time. And you can't in any way convey that through computer speakers or even high-end 5.1 oh no it must be insanely loud yeah so and you know that physical sensation you get particularly with the the low end you just can't reproduce that so um yeah i suppose you have to work around it and try to uh use certain techniques to convey that yeah and plus you've got the problem of the playback setup some will be tvs and then there's different types of those some will have stereo some will have 5.1 some will have headphones you know yeah absolutely and um and some people playing on laptops yes so, and they're the worst <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean it really is it is problematic and you know increasingly with um home cinema setups mm. um the sound in theory should be better or more impressive but then of course once you start introducing subs into living rooms which aren't acoustically treated etc you're going to cause potentially more problems than you you solve so you know when someone says oh well there's no base you know are they sitting in an anti-node or are they sitting in a, a nodal point and uh, you know are the standing waves affecting the the way they're perceiving the sound etc so but you can't legislate for any of that so oh no plus you get the same people who kind of set all their 5.1 in a row 
and uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, unprofessional setting up a professional setup and turning the, the centre speaker right up so he can hear the dialogue and all sorts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, talk about racing games. It seems natural to to discuss Project Cars, which was your uh, your most recent racing title. Absolutely. What was your first step? Uh, in many ways, this was the game that the group of friends that we started out with always wanted to make. Really, as you know, it's an independent game. It's a AAA game, of course, but independent. It's our own IP. Yeah. And Namco very kindly distributed it. Uh, and have done a, a remarkable job distributing the game for us, uh, obviously as a box product across three platforms and digital. So it was very much a project very close to our hearts. Started out in 2011. Wow, so it's been a while. Yes, yeah, it's, it's been a long time coming, really. I mean, the early stuff, I think it was November 2011, started to think about the music pretty much at that point, because I suppose I shouldn't complain, but Ian Bell, who owns the studio, as I was saying, one of my best friends. One of the pieces I composed for the very first game we did, GTR, in 2004, was a track that seems to have haunted me ever since, really. I'll just explain a little bit about the yeah, journey. I was say, in, what, in what way does it haunt you? So it's one, it's one of those things that you can't get rid of. So I did this track for, in 2002, I think it was, and it turned up in the game in 2004. And when we did GTR 2, the sequel to that, Ian said, oh, can you do a, a, a new updated version? I said, yeah, sure. So I, you know, rejigged it, added some orchestral stuff because samples were just starting to improve significantly by then. Yeah. Added a real guitar and all the rest of it. Um, so that was for 2004. Two, sorry, 2006 I did that. Then for the very first um, few builds of project cars remember they were kind of public builds at that point right okay because it was developed in in a similar way to kickstarter so all of the development process was done in public as it were ian said can you ah oh, can you do a a, a a new version of of this track again <laughs> so for the third time i did a new version of that uh with my wife singing who's an opera singer and um added some other guitars and stuff so it was a, it was a kind of basic rejig of that bringing it up to date with new libraries etc yeah and then of course uh, fast forwarding to the end of the project this time sort of last year really i suppose thinking oh my god this track from this rehash from 2011 sounds really dated now i'm gonna have to do another version so i had to redo the whole thing again from scratch pretty much to make it sound as i wanted it uh re-recorded everything and obviously remixed it when we did the final mix uh, in London. So that was the fourth version of the track. But then it gets worse because for one of the trailers, actually it was the launch trailer in March, we used the same track, although I did a, a, a kind of electronica remix of it. <laughs> so five versions hanging around. But bizarrely, someone, I didn't know at the time, but someone picked it up on YouTube in 2007 or eight or something when the land speed record thing. I oh, remember. right. Yeah. And it's got, there's two videos there, and, and between them, they've got something like 18 million views on them. So this version of the track from 2006 that, you know, I'd rather not anyone hear anymore, <laughs> is there, you know, is on the bloody internet. And, you know, what can you do? So you like messaging going, look, I've done an updated version. Yes, exactly. it just... <laughs> but, uh, I, well, you know, it's, it's annoying in one sense, although the royalties are okay in another. But so, yeah, the five bloody versions of the thing. But coming back to... To that process so 2011 rejig this thing and then just started to 
tinker with music in the background really and obviously the main priority was the sound at that point and doing some really innovative stuff with the cars really trying to harness as much of the new technology that was possible we recorded a ton of cars as well in in different ways uh, than we had done in the past we we redid the damage system the tire system all, all the rest of it so that was really that was really the focus for for 2012 really and, and 13 i guess and then i came back to the music much more consistently in 2014 so you have to spread your focus quite a lot between the sound design and the music was that quite a challenge or yeah it's it, I, it's it's a constant juggle really because inevitably there's periods where sound needs a lot more attention than the music but then there's also the, the time where the sound really needs a lot of attention and then someone says hey we've, we need to do a trailer so can you do a track so you sort of have to drop everything do that and then come back to it and whatever but you know it's it, it's great fun in that sense but we were also at the same time doing another game for uh, another publisher my.com and that was called uh, world of speed oh right okay and that's kind of free to play triple a game but free to play and then transactions etc massive multiplayer online thing slightly more arcadey than any of the other games and it did have a lot of music in it radio station music which during the early part of 2014 with a a very fine uh, music supervisor we put together a huge uh, array of of music i composed quite a lot of music as well i assembled some some good friends of mine did all sorts of different music and genres and then we mixed it all and so that was a big chunk of time and work yeah sounds like you've got a lot to juggle while you're going through all that yeah and that was sound as well on that one and then of course i was doing some other film projects as well at the same time so very yeah, busy man not, then for the past that's few years. why my hair is gray <laughs> just got too stressed <laughs> out that's it it's too much exactly. so yeah but coming back to project cars it's um a bit of labor of love in one on one respect and the the score for that primarily I, because uh, coming back to what i was saying just slightly earlier about having to do all of the work preparing the, the game player for racing in the menu system the music for project cars is really dramatic uh, full of tension, full of very large uh, orchestral textures. And it's, it's quite varied in the sense that the other thing that Ian Bell likes a lot is his guitars. What's interesting about that is, for some reason, I was talking to someone about it recently, about m- motorsport and the distortion guitar. You know, yeah. they always seem to go hand in hand. So it seems a bit strange not to have guitars in. But as anyone knows who's um, composed for guitar and orchestra. It's not the easiest thing to do. It's a difficult blend, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, it's, a, it's something you'd avoid if you had to. If you <laughs> yeah. but, uh, no, on the other hand, you know, you can't have motorsport without guitars. So. With Project Cars, is there something that you would say is the key difference that you've done with other racing titles? In terms of sound, yeah, there's lots in there that that's really does move the game on, I think, in terms of the way the car's recorded in terms of a lot of the processing in real time. So where I think we've we've really moved the game on, as it were, um, sound-wise. But then so as have competitors, so we've had to try and keep up from that respect. And it's a good thing, you know, that, that sense of competition. You know, one of the competition does something, you think, wow, that's really cool. How do they do that? Try and work around it, thinking, how could we do that? How could we surpass that? Yeah. Um, given that sound is such a, uh, an integral part uh, of, of simulation. Um, so we've really tried to, pu- to push the, the game on. And, you know, the, the good thing is that Project Cars is ongoing now. It's There's DLC. Project Cars 2 has been announced for 2017. Brilliant. So we're already 
thinking how can we do things better what what improvements can we make how far can we push the technology because obviously developing as you know developing on pc is one thing developing for consoles is another yeah it's completely um, different ball game isn't it yeah and it's it's difficult really i mean it's um because you don't want to offer the the, the game player a, a kind of second class cut down experience really so as far as possible we try and try and make the, the, the experience of the Sonic experience as, as similar as possible. And always the big challenge, as, as you well know uh, from your own work, is seemingly graphics and physics get all the, the memory. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, they say, oh, yeah, you can, you can just fit this all in four this megabytes. you make here, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Then we've got a bit of this left. What can you do? So, uh, yeah, that's always a, always a challenge. But, um, no, I think I think... The future is looking bright for audio in general. I think you know it's uh, yeah, it's definitely on the up. Yeah, and I, I think games companies and and producers, directors of the companies are really starting to see the benefits of, of great sound. We owe it to ourselves to to try to give them great sound as well. Yeah, and the community has been growing stronger and stronger as the years go by. I've noticed, and it's good because the word is kind of getting out there more, and, and people are paying attention more as you say audio directors and everyone and, and even just uh, directors and producers in general are kind of going oh no we need good audio yeah absolutely and uh, i hate to say it websites like your own i mean you know it's um the sound architect and similar websites really helping push the the importance and the you know the specialism thank you very much the so, checks in the post you know no that's all right well, <laughs> i still plug for us <laughs> <laughs> if you could change anything about project cars on the audio side what would it be just one thing ah that's an interesting thing and it's very very straightforward to answer actually the biggest bugbear as we all know doing sound and, and music and games is the loading phase right the movement out of the menu loading and then into gameplay yeah and that's always the biggest headache so we it's very, very tricky to stream music across seamlessly across that break, uh, the load uh, phase. So that's one of the things I'd love to change, really. And, you know, no matter how, mu- how much we try to manoeuvre around it, try to come up with innovative solutions and sound design elements to mask the transition, you know, it's, it's, never, it's never a perfect thing. And that's the one thing I'd love to change. Mm, that's interesting sometimes people have to think about that but you've obviously had that in your mind since you finished the project yeah well it's, it's not just project project cars the same we did the same thing with uh for example me for speech shift in 2009 so you know it's an ongoing issue isn't it and i just hope someone solves it i'm just curious you've done sound and music for quite a long time do you consider yourself a composer mainly or do you consider yourself like an, an all-round audio director as a definition Oh, that's a tricky one. My heart is composition, only composition, really, and music. Uh, that's that's who I am, I think. On the other hand, I do love doing sound as well. And I suppose, as we know, there is an increasing continuum, I think, if that does not con- contradict in terms between sound, design, and, and music. I mean, you know, it's, the boundaries are blurring all the time, aren't they? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, so there are, you know, elements of that. I do, yeah, I do like, I, I do love doing sound, but I think my heart really, really lies in music and that's what I enjoy the most. That's what I think of myself as a composer. And that's whenever, when I wake up in the morning, I think about doing music rather than sound. So we mentioned it briefly earlier. The Impressionists is a documentary film you recently scored and it's, it's very, very different to Project Cars 
you know, almost polar opposites, you could say. How did, how did you change your methodology to accommodate that? You know, because obviously your soundtrack's very, very piano-based and it's just very quiet is one of the words I would use compared to the cars. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not epic. <laughs> um, well, it's, uh, I suppose, like most composers in the film, TV, games world, you, you learn to adapt. You're a bit of a chameleon in some respects. Yeah. You have to be. And this project, came about, I'd, I'd worked with the director, Phil Grabsky, before, quite recently, actually, on a, a, another project. And he's a, he's a, a fantastic director, primarily of, of, of documentaries. And he, he came out of the BBC in the early 90s, I think, and developed on his own. And he's done a whole series of, of music documentaries on Beethoven, Haydn, Mozart, etc. Some fat, fantastic documentaries. And also he does these documentaries on famous artists and, and art periods. So I'd done some work with him on a live project called uh, Matisse, and that was broadcast live from uh, the Tate in London. I did some music for that. And then we talked about doing this Impressionist film, which is about not primarily about the painters themselves, but the art dealer, Paul Durand-Ruel, my, my best French accent. Um, <laughs> so this, this art dealer actually was the only person in Paris who believed in Monet, Renoir, etc., bought their paintings and literally prevented these painters from starving. So as a narrative, it's, it's, it's quite fascinating. So everything revolves around the art dealer. Obviously, you're seeing some of the most magnificent paintings the, of human civilization has provided. So it's a wonderful backdrop to try to score. And when we first started talking about the film, etc., seeing some of the early edits, Phil was really strongly committed to making the music cinematic. Right. So he didn't want music that was incidental in perhaps... The, the customary documentary sense. He wanted music to be part and parcel of the fabric of the film and also very much synchronised to the action on the screen. Right, OK. Albeit, you know, you're looking at paintings for a lot of the time. But yes. <laughs> so one of the ideas I had was, why not use music from the period, contemporaneous music from Debussy, Foray, Ravel, etc.? But the question then arises, how do you make existing piano music primarily cinematic? How do you make it fit the picture in terms of mood, in terms of syncing, in terms of time spans, etc.? So what we did was, to cut a very long story short, my wife, who's the opera singer, she's also a pianist, she's disgustingly talented. Oh, wow. We worked together on the film adapting existing music. So we took about five pieces of Debussy and literally exploded these pieces and, and abstracted and extracted some contrapuntal lines, some melodic lines, and then began to create some, in inverted commas, arrangements. They're far more than arrangements. They're the complete reframing of, of these pieces, reharmonized, all the rest of it, but in the style of Debussy, so that they would fit to the picture and, and the mood and the narrative arc. And then also, at the same time, we composed completely new music as well. It's a very interesting way of doing it. Yeah, I think it... It works in the sense that it's very much of the period, it's of the style. People know the music very well as well. Yeah. So as a composer, you're composing in the style of Debussy, but also arranging the music. And I always find working with very limited musical sources, in this case piano, there's some live cello, some harp, and some string, some other string 
the parts. I find it really inspiring just to work with a very small, compact sound world because you're always starting. If you have a limitless palette, I mean, on my um, my template on my computer, I've got a thousand different tracks on it or something, oh, wow. like, something crazy like that. But but you know that becomes almost baffling, doesn't it? You think, well, which clarinet shall I use from which library, etc. Yeah, it gets a bit confusing after a while. But if you've only got you know ten instruments you're not thinking in that same frame of mind. You're thinking, okay, how can I make the cello do this? What what kind of sounds can I get out of the piano? Uh, and in fact, I think it's a, a, a largely more creative way to work. We just really tried to be very sympathetic to the pictures, sympathetic in terms of, you know, not to overplay anything. The synchronization is very subtle. Of course, there's a lot of dialogue as well. There's a lot of voiceover. So we yeah. had to be very much around that. The underscore is is quite um, quite important in the film. So yeah, it was a very interesting and, and challenging project. And we've just started work on Phil's next film, which is about Renoir. Renoir started out as an impressionist and then sort of started to say that he wanted to move on. And obviously, by the end of his life, he's he's moved on quite considerably. Mm. So the music we're, we're going through the same process of of using uh, original music and then composing other stuff. But music like Satie, later Ravel, some Poulenc and stuff like that. So the sound world will be largely different. Did you kind of know quite a lot about the, the Impressionists and their time period before you wrote the, the score, or did you have to do a bit of research? Yeah, when I, whenever I do a, a score, particularly film score, I do a lot of background research. You have to, don't you? Because yes. you've got not only in terms of talking to the director and looking at the cuts and... But I, I, I always do a lot of background research into the context and and the characters and stuff because you really want to understand what they're what they're feeling, what they went through, etc. Uh, obviously, with the documentary, it's you've got a historical dimension to it, and characters as such are possibly a moot point as well. But for this this one, I I didn't know anything about the art dealer at all. I didn't know his role. I didn't, you know, like everyone. The university, I had a uh, a Monet up in, not a real one, unfortunately. I had a Monet up in my Hall of Residence, etc. I love the painting, but I had no idea that they'd gone through such a rough time in Paris. You know, they'd been laughed at and people would mock them. So you don't see them as particularly challenging or problematic paintings. And yet, at the time, they were really, really problematic. So I didn't know anything about that. So it was quite fascinating to to do some research about that. Musically, because I'd done a lot of historical musicology and, and conventional classical music study at university, I knew quite a bit about that period in terms of the history underlying it, but also the musical language and, uh, you know, obviously the theoretical dimension of the music. Yeah. Because as we know, Debussy was a great innovator incorporating all sorts of sounds and scales from non-Western traditions, as well as using modes, etc. So it was a very interesting period musically as well. It's been quite fun in a way then to be able to kind of explore that and write around it. Absolutely, yeah, really great fun. And one of the great things on this project, as you said earlier, that it features a mostly piano, although on the soundtrack album, which is available via iTunes and all good digital resellers. On the, <laughs> we'll have on, a link below as well. <laughs> on the soundtrack album, there is there are some vocal music as well on there, which she sings and a soprano friend of hers sings. But working with a fantastic and properly trained pianist is it is really really enlightening on a project like this and, and essential really because 
in order to make the music sound uh, and the original music sound authentic and idiomatic, the way in which the piano is being used, the patterns, the, the way the, the harmonies are voiced, etc., is is quite essential. So it, it becomes an important aspect of the whole process, really. Would you say it's influenced your writing method for the future after working on The Impressionist and even previous projects, you know, your, your writing must evolve. Yeah, I, I think this is the biggest thing and, and it picks up on something we were talking about earlier with this, this track that's haunted me. <laughs> yes. Inevitably, you look back on stuff you've done and you cringe and you can't, you, the, the thing that always amazes me really is you look back on stuff and you think, oh my God, please don't let anyone listen to it. In fact, I think on a, a broader philosophical point, I think... If we lose that sense of thinking, oh, my God, will someone like my music, it's all over. Oh, yes, when you lose the battle, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's completely all over. And I think, you know, all the composers I've, I've talked to about this, um, mainly over glasses of wine, <laughs> say the same things, you know, and it's, it's what keeps us alive. It's what keeps us striving to, to improve. But you look back at stuff and, you, and then you see people's comments on YouTube and think, and they still like it. And you think... Wow, how, how does that happen? Why, why do they like stuff from 2004 or whatever? Because you think yourself it, it sounds really dated. You yeah. kind of remember when you did it and it's, you just want to forget it really. But you're always striving to improve and always trying new things, always thinking it could be better. And I think one of the biggest things of all is the desire and our unquenchable thirst to use real musicians. And coming back to something I, I just mentioned about constraining yourself to using small ensembles i did a film a short film very recently for tim pope who's a, a very famous director of music videos primarily he also directed the crow city of angels about 10 years ago or something but he's done loads and loads of video work with the cure and queen and all sorts of people and it was a really really dark film i mean seriously dark film um set in northern ireland and very bleak sort of family tragic story and the music consequently is very dark psychological and and um emotional but i had a an ensemble of uh, quite an interesting ensemble um double bass cello viola harp piano and um someone doubling bass flute and alto flute top line musicians from london metropolitan orchestra and we recorded at Airedale in london and just having those that small ensemble again you really start to think about okay that instrument what can that instrument do what can it bring what can the solo cello bring what can a double bass do what can it bring and thinking about the ensemble and if you think about those musicians and the the, the skill that they display and the, the wonderful sound they they make and the instruments are, are you know incredible instruments and the cost of it it wasn't extortionate really you know, because you were using few instruments. But the sound you get is incredible, really. And I'm really pleased with that score and think, well, actually, there's only seven musicians on it. And I think one of the, one of my favourite film cues of all time is uh, from a film called Titus. And the uh, score, score is uh, Elliot Goldenthal. Um, and there's a cue from that film called Crossroads. And it starts with just cello and viola. And, I mean, it ends in this vast kind of Wagnerian soundscape. But... Right. These two solo instruments, I mean, it's just so powerful. And I remember listening to that for the first time, thinking, bloody hell, this is just two instruments, and it's wide, it's powerful, it fills the whole soundstage. This is what you could do with two really good players. 
So in a sense, you know, having eight great players, you think, bloody hell, I could do huge amounts. I remember the very first time at Abbey Road being in the control room and hearing the London Philharmonic Orchestra play some of music, and I was seriously emotional, lumping my throat. I welled up. You do. You know, you just think, my God, you know, because you just sort of pinch yourself and think, bloody hell, I'm in Abbey Road, and there's, there's proper musicians playing my music. But the trouble is then, once you've done that, once you've tasted that, you, going back to samples, the, you know, and I've got some really fantastic sample libraries, but you just think it's not the same, is it? It's not the same, no. And it's the human thing. Once a, a professional musician picks up their instrument, magic happens. That's it. Oh yes, phenomenal. Listening to true yeah. professional musicians, they can never capture that in a sample. No, nah, and thankfully not. You know. So speaking of tech, let's let's talk a bit about your tech for a second. What's your what's kind of your key setup, and, and do you have any go to software and plugins? Yeah, it's changed quite considerably in the last three or four months, actually. Um, so I've, like many people I know, I've had a stack of PC slaves in in the control in the uh, machine room yes. for the last sort of four or five years. Actually, the worst it got was six wow. slave PCs <laughs> streaming audio into three interfaces so 72 channels coming into uh, my old mac pro i know people who have bigger setups but uh, it was it was reasonable and then the technology started to change a few years back and the audio side of things streaming stuff over audio became less important because of vienna ensemble pro it was starting to work over network and then of course computers get faster ssds come on stream so now my core setup has slimmed down completely i've got rid of all of those slave pcs and i'm running a new mac pro dustbin thing <laughs> with um uh, uad apollo uh, which is a fantastic bit of kit and i'm using my old mac pro as a slave and a mac mini as a slave and i think I can stream about twice as many voices as I could with the seven PC slaves. Well, it's amazing how technology has come along, isn't it? You can reduce everything so much. And that's kind of the upside as well to the new technology, isn't it? How easy it is to move. Before, it was just kind of no chance. Everything had to be stationary. Yeah, exactly. I mean, hilariously, about four months ago when I was getting rid of all the PC slaves in my machine room, I had a huge server rack, big heavy metal thing. And cut a very long story short... In my studio, which is in my garden, I'd completely forgotten that five years previously, when I built the studio, the server rack was at the back of the room. And then I built, I had the wall built right. and a door into the, the, uh, into the control room, etc. Uh, from the machine. <laughs> but the, um, and you know what's coming next, don't you? The server rack would not fit through the door. So literally I had to get the hacksaw out and cut the server rack in half and well, there's moments where like, you've painted yourself into a corner. Exactly. But uh, So all that's gone now, really. And uh, so I'm just using the new Mac Pro UAD Apollo, which I wouldn't be without. I mean, I think UAD plugins are absolutely mind-blowingly fantastic. They really, really are good. I've got quite a bit of hardware synth st- stuff still sort of hanging around because I do like twiddling and, and fiddling with the knobs. Hardware reverb has broken down, so I'm just using software at the moment. Primarily sample-wise, I'm very, very fortunate to have one of the um, Spitfire bespoke libraries, the Symphonic String Library. Oh, very nice. Which is absolutely amazing. It's really noisy. It's really... There's lots of artifacts on it, clicks. Not clicks from dodgy samples, but 
players putting bows down, all sorts of stuff, stage noise. But on the flip side, it just sounds so brilliant, you know, and it, it sounds much more realistic than a lot of other samples. I've got many of the Spitfire libraries. They are really, really great, I think. Other sample libraries, I've got most of them, I think. I seem to spend quite a bit of money on those libraries. <laughs> you could spend so much on libraries, though, can you? If you get stuck into the world, you could end up just buying all of them. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's that's the danger, really. Beyond the Spitfire, Symphonic Strings and Sable, and I was almost going to shoot myself in the foot there, and the solo strings. I haven't bought any other string libraries for the last two years, I think, actually. Oh, wow. So they've done you well, then. It's been serving me really well. That, But yeah, brass libraries, I've got quite a few of those, and I'm umming and ahhing now to buy another one, which is the new uh, Sound Iron one, which looks good. So this is more of a personal thing, but brass, they just seem to be struggling more with to find good samples than than most other kind of instruments for some reason. Brass just seems to be the trickier one to sound less like a sample. Yeah, it, I, I think you're absolutely right. It is problematic. I have Hollywood Brass, which I don't use because I've always had some issues with some of those libraries, um, which we won't go into. <laughs> <laughs> That's another story. That's another story. I've got Cine Brass, which I think is really good, really, really good library, Cine Brass. Mm-hmm. I've got the Spitfire brass libraries i haven't got the the symphonic brass thing with the bespoke one which was magnificent but very very expensive i think my wife would have divorced me if i bought that (laughs) Um, and i've just recently picked up the spitfire phalanx libraries the the horns and the bones and the trumpet they are really really fantastic recorded obviously in air lindhurst and they do sound really really good but yeah i think generally speaking that it's harder to get right isn't it i just think it's just the tonality of it it seems to be you know because ever since the, the, the originally kind of even the midi ones that it's very hard not to sound like a midi brass unless it's really good sample you know absolutely and i think wherever i can even if there's you know for a demo or something or a quick trailer or something i try and get a, a live trumpeter or something to play over the top oh, fantastic. just to you know just to give some shape and definition to the song yeah just to color it yeah exactly because you know again as we were saying earlier, the live the live thing is so important. Oh, definitely. I think I'd always like to have at least one live element. Yeah. So, so we've touched briefly on the future, but what what else lies in the future for you now? There's another game at the moment which is going to be announced shortly, which I think is terrifyingly due to come out in March or something. Okay, no pressure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's another film on the horizon for mid next year, and I'm doing some pilot stuff for a TV series at the moment oh, cool. as well, which is which is really good. Nice and busy then. Yeah, nice and busy, and and some library stuff as well, of course. All right, recording quite a bit of your own libraries. I, I quite enjoy that actually, doing doing stuff to a brief and and to certain you know time spans and and whatever. So that's that's uh, been very enjoyable. I'm doing quite a lot of that uh, at the moment as well. And I got roped into doing a chapter for a new book, which is coming out in January, I think. And then there's another one which I'm doing at the moment actively for a, a book on film music and game music. And then there's another chapter on... Do you have enough spare time to do this? Uh, not really, but... Um, I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah. That's what keeps me awake at night, thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to have to write this now. I think that's about Brilliant. it. Brilliant. The links will be below, and we'll keep an eye out on your, on your future projects. If you could give one piece of advice to aspiring composers, what would it be? Oh, I think we're all aspiring composers. <laughs> <aren't we? laughs> I, think, I think, actually, it's really important. It's a really important question. 
Um, because coming back to what we said earlier, I think you're always striving to improve. You're always striving to get better at what you do, to try new things. And what I would say to maybe younger composers or perhaps less experienced composers is to just keep keep your mind open and really be determined, be conscientious, be a good guy or a good girl, you know, and, and enjoy working with people, work with live musicians, try and develop your own sound, whatever that is, because that's always another another big question. I read something the other day as well, actually. I think it was Kevin Spacey who said something about our responsibility. I'm not putting myself on any kind of level with <laughs> Kevin Spacey, don't worry. I'm just saying it was quite an interesting point. He said that the responsibility of actors who have made you know obviously a huge career out of their their craft is their responsibility to send the elevator back down to pick up the younger generation yeah and i think that's that's really interesting well, i, I think, like that yeah so do i i think inevitably what i would say and i hope this doesn't come across to anyone who listens to this as um in any way condescending but i think inevitably young composers who i come in contact with obviously they want to really get on with their careers really quickly but you have to perhaps take a step back at certain points and think okay i'm going to have to learn how to do this i'm going to have to seek advice from someone i'm going to have to be serve my time as a, an apprentice serve yeah. my time as an assistant and look at those opportunities look at those as opportunities but also with relish and really put your your back into it because i think Working alongside a, a really experienced composer, I'm not saying I'm a really experienced composer by any stretch, but, you know, that opportunity to be an assistant is priceless, really, I think. It's a very um, rare opportunity as well that comes along. Yeah, exactly. And I think if, you know, if some of the, the guys and, and girls who are just coming on out of, you know, maybe education or, you know, starting their, their careers, do look for an apprenticeship like that. Do look for an assistantship because, and an internship because, you can learn so much from just just being in the situation where things are happening. You know, and obviously you can be extremely useful. I think that perhaps was some kind of advice. <laughs> That's very good advice. I think it was brilliant. I think just never give up. If it's what you really, really want to do, don't give up. Yeah, that seems to be the common theme, to be honest, is, is that the fact that, you know, if you want it, then you've just got to keep going for it. Yeah. Okay, well, a nice, nice fun one to finish off with. If you could have a drink with anyone from any time, dead or alive, who would you choose? Oh, bloody hell. Can I have two people? You can have two people. I shall allow it. This sounds like Desert Island. Is it does, doesn't it? Two, yeah. Pro well, first one, Jean-Jacques Rousseau um, from the 18th century. Oh, wow. Because that was my principal subject matter for my PhD. So I'd love to interview the guy and say what exactly did you mean by that and probably oh probably mozart or beethoven i don't know beethoven i would say yeah just to pick his brains for a minute or two would be amazing i think i think it's one of those people that i'd have so many questions i wouldn't know what to ask first yeah i mean that's the thing you you that would be just the most extraordinary opportunity someone has to invent a time machine oh they really do yeah they do but then we'd all just misuse it and it would end up messing everything up anyway. <laughs> that's that's time-space continuum and stuff. Yeah, it would all just implode. Yeah. <laughs> so on that note, <laughs> good positive way to end. Thanks very much for listening. That has been the brilliant Stephen Baster. Thanks again for joining us, Stephen. It's been a pleasure having you. Thanks for inviting me. Really enjoyed it. And um, I hope everyone stays awake. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure.